Beloved, I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 6, Romans chapter 6, and uh, this morning, uh, in the 50th week of uh, this series, uh, we will be looking particularly at verses 20 through 23, really zoning in on verse 23, God willing, next week. So please stand for the reading of God's Word in Romans chapter 6, beginning in verse 20. Please hear the word of the living God. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now that you have been set free from sin, And have become slaves of God. The fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. Let us pray. Our Father, we pray that you would illumine our hearts and our minds. For apart from your grace and your spirit... These words will travel over our heads and in one ear and out the other. They will bang off of our hearts. But we pray, O God, we pray that this morning we would hear your word. We would receive your truth. That it would be branded upon our hearts. That our faith would embrace it. And that we would abide in Christ. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Be seated. Many want to believe that they are safe being halfway committed to God. Being what Puritan Matthew Mead called a quote, almost Christian. One of his famous books in the 17th century, The Almost Christian. Many want to believe that there is a middle path of compromise between the broad road that leads to destruction and the narrow road that leads to life. But our Lord Jesus doesn't ever mention a third way. He doesn't give a third option. A third way or a third option or a third path is a fiction. Matthew 7 13 and 14, Jesus says this, quote, Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide, and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many, for the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Pastor, why are so many people going down this path, believing all these lies, embracing all the moral chaos? Why are so many people going down that broad road? Dear one, should this be a surprise to us? Jesus himself says this is the way it is. There is a wide gate. Gate, and there is a narrow gate. 
That's it. One leads to everlasting death, and the other leads to everlasting life. In our study of Romans, we've observed the Apostle Paul, that the Apostle Paul does not mention a third way either. No, you are either, Romans chapter 5, 12 through 21, in Adam, or you are in Christ, by grace through faith. That is, in union with Christ. We have been considering this uh, all-important doctrine of union with Christ. We've, we've mentioned that to understand the Christian life apart from this doctrine of being united to Christ is really to, uh, to misunderstand the Christian life, or at least to not have a full picture of it. Paul lays this out clearly in Romans chapter 5. And he teaches us that we are either dead in sin, united to Adam and dead in sin, or alive in Christ through our union with Him. We are either branches stuck to uh, the stalk of Adam, the, brand, the, 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 uh, the tree of Adam, which is dead and putrefying, or we have been, by God's grace, broken off of that tree and engrafted into the vine of Christ, and we are alive and we are bearing fruit, the least of which is belief, worship. The Bible says, Paul says, you are either a slave of sin or a slave of righteousness. There's no third option. You are either a slave of one or the other. And we began looking at Paul's inspired analogy of the two slaveries last Lord's Day, didn't we? And we learned that true human freedom, as many want to understand human freedom, is a fiction. It's a fiction. According to Scripture, true human autonomy is a myth. The last truly free persons to exist in the world were Adam and Eve in the pre-fall garden. But that freedom was lost when they believed Satan's lie, ate the forbidden fruit, and sinned against God. When they sinned against God, they fell. They fell from that place of original righteousness and fellowship with God. And we fell with them. That's when we talk about this world being a fallen world. It's why the world is as it is. Because humankind has collectively raised their fist and rebelled against God. And what it is that will be actually a blessing to humanity, we've rejected and rather we've embraced with all of our hearts the curse You know, when you're a parent of small children, your children say the darndest things. And I remember there were times where my own children, when they were very young, would walk up after they had gotten in trouble and said something like this, Daddy, why did I do that? Why did I do that? You know, sometimes we say that as adults too, don't we? There is something that sin does to us. It it, it clouds our minds. It darkens our minds so that we do things that we know will have bad consequences, but we do them anyway. And it demonstrates, does it not, that there is this slavery to sin 
this fallenness in Adam. Cast out of the Garden of Eden and depraved in sin in our minds, our hearts, our wills, our affections, our first parents no longer possessed the inherent freedom to love and to worship and to obey God in truth and righteousness. They lost the ability to do so because now they possessed not original righteousness, but original what? Sin. And the fruit of original sin and slavery to sin is what Paul calls unrighteousness, ungodliness. This ability to commune with God, to love God, to worship God was lost, not only for Adam and Eve, but for all who would be born into this world after them. It's what Romans 5 teaches. It's what our confession teaches in the Westminster Shorter Catechism, question 16. Did all mankind fall in Adam's first transgression? Answer, the covenant being made with Adam, not only for himself, but for his posterity, uh, all mankind descending from him by ordinary generation, sinned in him and fell with him in his first transgression. When Adam, because we were united to Adam in that federal headship, we've learned from Romans 5 that when he sinned, we sinned. When he fell, we fell with him and in him. How else would you make sense of Paul's words in Romans 5.12, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. Again, verse 15, But the free gift is not like the trespass, for if many died through one man's trespass, this is what has happened. Verse 17, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man. Paul is laying out in chapter 5 the, the reality of what it means to be born into this world in Adam, in sin, and under the law. Did all mankind fall in Adam's first transgression? Yes. Question 17, into what estate did the fall bring mankind? So what's our current condition? Answer, the fall brought mankind into an estate of sin and misery. Sin and misery. You see, these are the theological categories that God's people need to remember and cling to in order to be faithful disciples. So many big box churches and the shiny books at the bookstores are encouraging a kind of self-help, therapeutic version of Christianity so that the focus is not on what does the Bible say, but on how does the Bible make me feel. What's most important is not the glory of God, but my own well-being and being centered and this whole approach to the Christian life is anti-biblical. It is humanistic, and it is wicked 
because it is diverting people's eyes away from the person and finished work of Christ for our salvation onto ourselves. Dear ones, we are not born with original righteousness, but with original sin. Thus, we are born slaves of sin, living east of the Garden of Eden. And this slavery leads to physical, spiritual, and eternal death. The wages of sin is death. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. Paul writes to the church at Ephesus, And you were, this is who you were, Ephesian Christians, You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walk, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, that's Satan, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires, the appetites of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. That's Paul's inspired explanation of who these Ephesians were prior to knowing Christ and to being united to Him. By nature, children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. So, dear ones, human freedom as it's understood by many, is a fiction. Autonomy is a myth. In other words, no one is truly autonomous. No human is inherently free, as people like to think of human freedom. Those who are addicted to pornography or marching in gay pride parades or living on their own terms in one way or another are not free. There's nothing really free about that. It's bondage. The Bible calls it slavery to sin. One is either a slave of sin and therefore a slave of Satan and death or a slave of righteousness, namely a slave of God and a slave of Christ and receiving life. In him. As we come to this passage, and as, as, as this passage confronts us, we must ask ourselves who am I a slave to? Who am I owned by? And how is that reflected by the fruit of my life? The most basic fruit of someone who is a slave of Christ, is someone who loves God and who desires to honor and to glorify Him and to worship Him. That's that's basic. If God and His truth and His gospel and the preciousness and loveliness of Christ are an afterthought in your life, somewhere way back there that sort of comes to mind from time to time or maybe during special seasons in the church calendar, then are you really a slave of Christ, bearing the fruit of righteousness? Imperfect in this life? Yes. But you can still say, I am a slave of Christ. I am happy to be shackled to Him. 
I am like Paul in some measure, unashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ in this world that tells me that I am a fool. This is what this passage does. It confronts us and it asks us, who are you? What is your identity? The whole world is talking about identity these days. Identity politics, sexual identity, so-called. Where is our identity? Where is your identity? May it be in Christ. Paul's analogy of slavery would, again, help his first century readers in Rome to better understand their union with Christ and all of its ethical implications for discipleship sanctification. And we learned last week that the average uh, first century Roman would know a lot more about slavery than we do, because at least one-third of cities in the Greco-Roman world were filled with slaves. Slavery made up one-third of the population. It took many forms. Again, there were foreign prisoners of war who were made slaves. Others were captured in foreign lands and made slaves. Others were debt slaves, making themselves bond servants to someone that they owed a lot of money to. The slaves were ubiquitous in the ancient world. So Paul's inspired analogy, again, is a helpful one for helping God's people to understand sin, salvation, sanctification, and the Christian life. This morning, I want us to look more closely at verses 20 through 22. And there are two headings in my outline. You'll see that in your bulletin if you'd like to follow along there. First of all, we have slavery to sin and its dreadful consequences. Slavery to sin and its dreadful consequences. Look with me again at verses 20 and 21. For when you were slaves of sin... You were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? Paul is writing to the Christians at Rome. He is reminding them of who they are in Christ or united to him and who they used to be in Adam or in sin, that is united to sin and to to Adam. He's reminding them, he's reminding them of who they are as those who are enslaved to God and who they used to be, enslaved to sin. So Paul writes here, look there with me, for when you were, past tense, slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. What does Paul mean by this curious phrase, free in regard to righteousness? Well, let's First, rule out what it doesn't mean. Being free in regard to righteousness does not mean being free from the requirement of righteousness. As if God's righteous requirements had no bearing on or relation to their lives while they were slaves to sin. No. What Paul means is that they were not under the influence and control of righteousness, as it were. Enslaved to sin... The sinner is truly not concerned from the heart about God's glory and his standards of righteousness. Remember the apostles' words in verse 17. Look there with me. Thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become, what? 
obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. In other words, Paul explains that when these Roman believers were slaves of sins, they were free from slavery to righteousness. Ironically, freedom from slavery to righteousness is the worst kind of slavery with the worst kind of consequences. John Murray states that when they were slaves of sin, quote, they were carefree in respect of the demands of righteousness. With undivided heart and a single eye, they were bondservants of sin. And that was the only master they knew. It was the only master they knew. Now, Paul goes on to ask a piercing question in verse 21. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? In other words, what kind of fruit did you receive from the way you once lived in sin, a lifestyle that now brings you shame? You see, Paul wanted to remind God's people And he wants to remind every one of us this morning that going back to a life of sin is foolish and crazy. He's saying, look at the shameful fruit that a life of sin produces. Why would you want to go back to that? Those who might be caught up and entangled in secret sin, why have you gone back to that? Why would you want to go back to that? It is, it is shameful, and Paul reminds God's people of it. Commentator Cranfield says this, quote, To be ashamed of one's past evil ways is a vital element in sanctification. To be ashamed of one's past evil ways is a vital element in sanctification. It's why we, in part, confess our sins. Every Lord's Day, is it not? Because we come confessing our sins and confessing our sins and admitting to our sins and thinking about our sins makes us ashamed of the way that we lived and to put our hope and our faith and our trust in Christ and it's a part of the sanctification that God is working in us. Why would we want to go back to a life under sin? Shortly after being born again in 1991, I remember vividly how deeply ashamed that I was for my former way of life. Of course, in those early days, after crying out to God by His sovereign grace and receiving Him as my Lord and Savior, my life of sin and licentiousness was was fresh. It was only days before that I was living a life of rebellion against God, a life of sin. And as I think back to that life, and because I was an adult, uh, a young adult, when, uh, when I was living in that way, I can, I can vividly remember being enslaved to sin. I can remember what that's like psychologically and emotionally and affectionately living with sin as my master. My appetites ruled me. I wanted the glory. 
and I wanted to satisfy my appetites. And I wanted what the world was giving to me. And I never had enough of it. I always wanted more. It never, it's like eating donuts. They never satisfy. Just, you might as well take one bite because every bite thereafter will not satisfy you. And it's, it's like sin. Donuts are sin, basically. Sin never satisfies. It never brings you to a place of peace. Because it is against what God has designed for us. Namely, fellowship with Him, which is the highest glory. Which is doing that which God made us to do. Everybody's trying to figure out who they are. Am I a man? Am I a woman? Am I a human? Am I a lizard? I'm not kidding. There's a, 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 there's a, there's a dragon woman that's now getting news. On one hand, it's, it's, it's funny, but really it is devastatingly sad that someone who is enslaved to sin has become the toy of the devil, making this person believe that they are a dragon and so changing their appearance with tattoos and with plastic surgery to have fangs and horns and green skin. Everybody's trying to figure out who they are when God's word so clearly communicates to us that we are made in his image that because of sin have fallen away from him and he sent his son into the world to save us from our sin and from ourselves and all of our foolishness and from everlasting death and to bring us back into fellowship with him through Jesus Christ. And I remember after being born again, shortly thereafter, being so ashamed. My emotions and my mind, which now is full of light because of the gospel and the work of the Spirit, and I'm, I'm thinking about all these things I had done that were so sinful, wicked against God, all the unwholesome and profane speech that came out of my mouth all the wicked thoughts that crossed my mind, all the sinful deeds that I had done. And this did not include all of the countless things that I failed to say and, and didn't think and should have done. What was the fruit of my life? It was rotten, and shameful. What's shameful are when people get up and give their testimony and they start sharing in detail about all the terrible things they had done as if they're enjoying recounting it. It's shameful. God had done so much for me. He had sent his son to die for me. He had put me in a Christian home where I was hearing the gospel. And I took him for granted. 
and I disgraced him. I cared more about what some idiot teenager thought than what God thought when I was an idiot teenager. Paul ends verse 21 by telling us where this kind of a life ends up apart from salvation in Christ. Notice in verse 21, for the end of those things is death. You eat of this fruit, you shall surely die. Genesis 2. This death is not only physical death, it's also spiritual death and eternal death. Again, John Murray writes, quote, Death, which is the end of these things, can be nothing less than death in its most ultimate expression. And, though not restricted to everlasting perdition, must nevertheless include it. We read of this so-called second death in Revelation chapter 20 at the end of our Bibles. Revelation 20, 14, and 15 the Apostle John writes this, Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Well, thankfully, Paul goes on from this bad news to announce good news. And another kind of slavery. A kind of slavery which is the ultimate freedom for sinners like us. Slavery to God and its glorious consequences. That's our second heading. Slavery to God and its glorious consequences. Look with me now again at our passage for this morning, beginning in verse 20. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. Then two of the most precious words in all of the Bible, but now. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal Life. Dear ones, those two words are explosive. If you write in your Bible, underline those two words and highlight them, put them on your fridge. But now, two of the greatest words in the Bible. But now, what? Some may ask. But now, you have been freed from sin. But now you are no longer slaves of Satan and sin and hell and death. Notice he doesn't say, but soon. Soon you will be delivered from this, this master. But soon. No, it doesn't, say, it doesn't say, but later. The text says, but now. But now. Now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. Dear one, if you are united to the crucified, resurrected, ascended, and exalted Christ, 
by grace through faith, you are no longer enslaved to sin. It no longer reigns over you. As we've said in past weeks, it does remain in us and we fight against it. Romans chapter 7 will have a lot to teach us about that. The remnants of sin are still in us. We still deal with sinful desires, sinful temptations from within. But sin does not reign over us. It is no longer our master. We are no longer beholden to sin because we are in Christ. You are no longer under the crushing requirements and condemnation of the law and headed towards the second death. No, united to Christ, the requirements of God's law have been satisfied. And he went to the cross. And he himself bore the second death for his people. United to Christ, then, dear one, you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God. Yes, Lord, I want to be your slave. Paul says in Romans 1.1, Paul, bond servant of Christ Jesus. Put that on your resume. John Payne, slave of God. BA, Clemson University. It's who we are in Christ. Shouldn't we live like it? Shouldn't the fruit of this relationship, being enslaved to God, being united to the risen Christ, bear the fruit of righteousness in growing measure? Not perfectly, but truly and increasingly. Paul then contrasts the fruit and the ends of slavery to God with the fruit and ends of slavery to sin. Remember the fruit and ends of slavery to sin. Shameful fruit that ends in eternal death. What about slavery to God? The fruit and ends of slavery to God are sanctification and in the end, eternal life. See, once again, we are brought back to the doctrine of union with Christ. And when we have been brought from spiritual death to spiritual life in union with the risen, ascended, and exalted Christ. We've been brought into union with Him. We've been made alive in Him, thus born again. Then at that very moment, but now, we have been freed from sin, freed from the dominion and slavery of sin and death, and we've been set free in Christ to be a slave of Christ. And in Him... At that very moment of being in union with Christ, we are declared at the throne of God's judgment righteous, justified. It's as if we've never sinned. Christ uh, obeyed the law for us. He paid the penalty on the cross for us. He went into the grave paying the wages of sin, which is death, and then he rose from the dead, and we rise in him and with him. We've died to sin in Him, and we live to Christ in Him. And so we are justified. We are also adopted into God's family. It all happens in one moment. We are born again. 
We are given the gift of faith. We are receiving Christ and His righteousness and forgiveness. We are justified. We are adopted into His family. And then a process begins called what? Sanctification. Called what? Sanctification. And that is the fruit of being a slave of God, of being united to Christ. It's called sanctification. What is sanctification? I'm glad you asked. It is when, united to Christ, we die more and more to the remnants of sin and to all of its external temptations, and we live more and more in the fruit of righteousness in Jesus Christ. We become more holy. It's gradual. It's never as fast as we would like. It's frustrating. But it's true. And it's a fruit of being enslaved to God by grace through faith. Again, Murray writes, The new life in Christ is not slavery as it exists among men. It is the highest and only freedom. If we want to experience freedom in its fullest, then we must be in union with Christ by grace through faith. If we want to experience true freedom, we must embrace all that it means and all that it is to be a slave of obedience, a slave of righteousness, a slave of God. All three of those are mentioned in our text in chapter, in chapter 6. And the three really are synonymous. They all really mean the same thing. A slave to obedience, a slave of righteousness, a slave of God. It means that we are united to Christ and we are not our own. And that's our greatest comfort in life and in death that I'm not my own, but I belong both body and soul to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. And what a Savior He is. Christ comes back, I believe, that everyone is, who is united to Him, their first thought will be, what a beautiful Savior. He gave Himself for me. That glorious Christ returning with all of his heavenly host, he died for me. I think our second thought just might be, oh, how I should have loved him more. Oh, how I should have trusted him more. Oh, how I should have embraced that slavery to him rather than embracing the sin of that former master who still offers me things. And at times I say yes, because I stop believing God's promises and I start believing, once again, the lies of sin and Satan and death. The one who I used to be enslaved to but no longer am. Dear ones, many like to think that there is a middle way, a third path. Again, Matthew Mead talked about the almost Christian. The fact is, those who are almost Christians and walking on the middle path of compromise rather than united to Christ and walking on the narrow road by grace through faith, are still enslaved to sin, 
are still united to Adam and are still under the wrath and judgment of God, which is just piling up over time and will one day be unleashed at the coming of Christ when he separates the sheep from the goats. This morning, as we prepare to come to the Lord's table and commune with our Lord, let us remember who we were, slaves of sin. Let us remember who we are, slaves of God. Let us remember how we are to live in grateful, growing obedience to his word, trusting in Christ alone for our salvation. And let us remember where we are headed eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Let us pray. Our Father, we thank you for our union with Christ and all the glorious implications of that union from our justification to adoption to sanctification to glorification. And oh Lord, we pray that you would draw us to yourself. That as we abide in Christ through all that is represented at this table, that you would feed and nourish us by your spirit. Strengthen your pilgrims on the way.